This is a follow-up conversation with Al Peso. Hi, Al. Hi, Serge. So, what actually happens during a group session? What's the process? Okay. Uh, we start the group off with uh, just a check-in. If it's a new group, they all say their name and what they do and their goals. And very often... Uh, they get moved for some reason as they talk, and I might highlight some of the elements uh, that we might attend to uh, lined up with what they just said. After that, I tell them about the procedure, et cetera, et cetera, and they didn't know the format. And then we ask people uh, uh, who would like to begin, and we make it clear that while the person is working, that it's their responsibility to bring the work to a good end, and then we have a timer, a 40-minute timer, and says to have 10 more minutes to bring it to a good end, and that it is their responsibility, so that we don't just repeat the old stuff, and my responsibility to be their uh, resource and their uh, helper to bring it to a good end. So, so bring it to a good end is an important part of this. Should we talk about it now or just keep it, you know, in mind well, for later as the good end means that we do reversals, that we make a new memory, that the whole feature here is not insight, but new memory, because we know we see the present through the lens of history, through memory. So we make a new memory, and immediately people's perception of the present shifts. It's a startling neurological reality. Okay, so, so very, very important in this process is insight in itself. Not only is not necessarily good, but could be bad. The point is creating a new experience from which a new memory can emerge. Exactly. And the experience is posited as if it had happened in the past. And that's part of the ritual thing, that we're not in a present relationship, that we touch and present the new memory to that part of the brain that contains their body image and memory of that time. So we're putting it into long-term memory, I believe, and not into short-term memory. And And I think the ritual factor helps it do such a thing. I don't know if neurologically that's possible, but, but that's what we we aim for. And I, then I also highlight to the group that since people respond instantly to what they see and respond instantly to what they hear, that the group should not speak or talk and respond during the person's work because then the person will start relating to the group. But the group relates immediately the person who's working and they identify with it because it is so real and they sometimes they'll tear up and they'll remember their own issues but we don't attend to it at that moment mm-hmm. okay so clearly the focus is on the person working and that's everything right. is is around that that's right so we don't do group process during the uh, procedure sometimes we do group pro- so let's say we finish the work and I'll talk about finishing the work, which we didn't do before, then I'll say now it's the time for sharing. And in the sharing, they speak about their own personal experience without directing their commentary to the one who worked. So the person doesn't feel, they get interrupted from that quality they have at the end of the structure. They're in that other state. Yeah. Uh, and are absorbing it. And then I make certain that people don't make corrections or questions or criticism of the work 
because that would really disturb the person at work. But they have ample opportunity to say, this is what happened to me. I saw so much what my family was like, just like his family or her family. And I remember a situation so vividly. I hadn't thought about it in 20 years, but it, stuff like that comes mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And then they begin to know what they, they want to work on in their own work. Yeah. But let, let's talk about the end of the work, which we didn't do in the earlier part. If it was in a group, uh, someone, some two people would have enrolled as the ideal mother and the ideal father and be placed at the, uh, at the client's choice in proximity to them so that they can get a tactile memory and an auditory memory and a visual memory because as the ideal parents talk, they might say, if we had been your ideal parents, we would, and if they were directed to say it, your ideal father and I would be happily married and I would never be distressed. And then the client would look up and see their faces and I would direct that they look at each other. So he would Mm -hmm. see a visual sense of unity instead of that gap that he saw between his mother and father. And then what happens at that point is oxytocin starts to flow. They feel part of the whole nesting thing. And they say, oh, my God, if they were together, like I could lean back. I say, well, why don't you lean back then? And they they would feel that, and they may close their eyes or say that, and then I say, and they say, I feel, oh, I could be, I could have been so peaceful. So I say, experience that peacefulness when as your child image, and that's an important thing, Serge. It's surprising they feel it now, and they say, oh, that feels great. And then the ideal parents would say, if we'd been your ideal parents, you would have felt this peaceful with us when you were five, six, seven, eight years old. And when they do, they say, oh, my gosh, the the difference between the two states, just because you say the words back then and they go back then in their psyche, it gets planted somewhere else. And then they say, the world looks bright. I can see flowers. Yeah. And then the ideal parents say, if we'd been your ideal parents, you could have seen flowers when you... So we use their language to fulfill the dialogue as it goes. So and it's then, really, it's really any, it's, it's really not just a concept. It's not just a, but you really live it and you stay with it and you go deeper with it. So right. there is that sense of really uh, absorbing it as an Absolutely. experience at and that then, end time. And then it takes a certain understanding of timing from the therapist. They might close their eyes and they just sink into it or they may suddenly bounce up and say, oh, that was great. And I said, you landed the plane too abruptly. I think you jumped out with a parachute. So let's, uh, you know, because the boop, and I say, just, they say, well, I don't know if you have enough time. I say, just finish it and see, let it have an organ, organismic end. And then they'll go back into it and they'll feel it and feel it. And then it, I just wait unless they have something to say. They're, they're absorbing it. And then I might repeat, experience it at the age when you needed that. And now they've got the tactile, the visual, and maybe not only the auditory, but maybe even the smell. Because I think there's such a big thing about odor. Of course, it isn't real, they're real parents, but they're breathing a different sense of air yeah. at that time. And, and, um, 
then an interesting thing happens. While their eyes are closed, they may nod their head, and you see the things, because it is an organismic thing, and when it's over, it has a sense of closure. They'll nod their head, but they don't interrupt, and then little by little, they open their eyes, and they look at me directly. They're no longer in the hypothetical past. They say, that's it, I got it now. And then I say, are you ready for de-rolling? They say, yes. And we start de-rolling first the placeholders, each object, and it gets removed ritually. This is no longer a placeholder for your boss. Oh, we had to move that principle, remember? Yeah. We might get then, if it's a group, we get somebody to be, we say, well, you want to pick, uh, before this time, I have to jump back a bit. Before we'd come to the ending, we'd have moved that. And I, I'd forgotten that sequence. But they say, pick someone to be a principal mover, and they pick someone. So, and I've taught them this ritual. They stand up as if they were in some kind of uh, uh, chapel or a setting of uh, some religious setting, and they'll stand up in a, and then they'll walk to that object, kneel down, and then carefully reach forward and grasp that object, and then move it over to where it belongs, take it off the uh, the placeholder for the boss, put it on the father, and then they'll look at the boss and they say, he's just the boss now, it's amazing. Before, if I thought of him, I'd get all pissed off and everything, and now I say, okay, he's my boss. So they've already shifted their perception of the boss. It seems ridiculously simple. But it happens. It happens, mm-hmm. just yeah. like I said. And then we remove, then we have, we remove that placeholder, all the other placeholders. Then we do the movies. They say, now this is no longer the movie of your mother with an ideal husband. Or then if they had to, they might have done a movie with a mother as a little child, having ideal parents who would have supplied her with her needs, whatever other. Uh, movies had come up, we'd take that apart, and then we'd kind of wipe out, I say, and then we'll remove that voice that we had. Remember there was a voice of truth, and I'll sort of wipe it out of the air. I say, it's no longer there, and we'll wipe out the witness figure, and then the ideal parent, I say, are you ready for the ideal parents to de-roll? Sometimes they say, yeah, and somebody say, wait a minute, no, I want a little more. They'll go back, and they'll say, mm, they'll take another taste. They say, okay, now. And the person says, I'm no, they're both together. They each say, I am no longer role playing your ideal mother. The other one says, ideal father. I'm myself. They say their name. So it isn't linked to the real person, except they'll remember the real person being the carrier of that. Yeah. And then they'll step away. And then I told the people, uh, in the sharing, uh, or afterwards during breaks, uh, talk to each other as you ordinarily would in your social sense, but don't say in a humorous way, how's my kid doing? How's my... Mm-hmm. Say, don't do that. Keep separate the ritual relationship and then your own personal social thing. Let's not combine the two. Yeah. So I make uh, that, that part of the clarity. And uh, then the person sits down, and then I say the thing we were talking about before, let's do sharing now. And then people will talk about what happened to them as they watch that. And that could be very moving. And it could begin to prepare some people to do the work that they're going to do next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, as this is happening in the group, um, what is the body experience of, um, you know, the, um, um, the person who is working? How is it 
paid attention to what oh, oh, I watched that all I didn't say too much about it. I watched it all around all through I will watch their posture and sometimes I might note certain kinds of actions they're doing in gestural actions and and say you're holding and hugging yourself that we call that a self-self interaction. Would you like the ideal parents to put their arms around you the way you're putting your arms around yourself? So I attend to that. Or they'll say, I'm feeling my chest is aching uh, at some point. And then I'll say, let's explore what that could be. And sometimes it's useful to take a deep breath, tighten your muscles around the achy spot, see what sounds come what movements come or what emotions come? And they go, <laughs> and I say, what was that? They say, my God, it sounds like I was in agony or that I was crying. I said, well, see what happens if you let that feeling come out. And then they might sob and cry. And then they'll, they'll say, yeah. And the witness, I see how much grief you feel as you remember how it had been. And I sometimes call that a relief grief sequence. Sometimes they feel absolutely say, oh, I feel so good. And the next moment they tear up. Mm. So when they feel the good, they can contrast it with how bad it had been. And that's a better time to feel grief when there's no alternative. You know, when people feel grief because it's just empty, but not the flavor of what could have been, it's a horrifying grief. And that would be like the, uh, the stuff of uh, the primal scream where it's endless grief because there's no alternative. Yeah. So then I can say, uh, we call that the relief grief sequence. And the witness, I see how much grief you feel when you remember how bad it had been. And then they'll say, oh, I feel like a load is off my chest. My shoulders are dropped. And I'll I'll attend to all the motor things, which I I always do. But I I didn't bring it up now uh, because of uh, I do this so automatically uh, from what I've done in the past. But we pay attention to all the shifts in the body because if they they something, they say, Oh, that's good. I feel fine now. And I can hear in their tone and the way they move away uh, that it isn't real. So I look for authentic reports or as-if reports when they're trying to just comply with what they think you're anticipating. So depending on what they do, I will make an intervention. If, if If their body is loaded, if their vocal tones shift, if their facial expression shows something different than what they're saying. So I track it all with the witnessing, and sometimes I just track it by making observations. Yeah, and the focus, again, is on the person working, but the people who are playing roles, uh, you're not tracking, but you're doing is you might be giving them some directions of, yeah. you know, some things to say or to act or do. I'll give them directions to say, to, usually just to use their phrase, uh, that they, they, I don't invent new things. If they say, oh, uh, my mother and father really love each other this way, it feels wonderful. And so they say, if we were your writer parents, we would have loved each other this way. Mm-hmm. So I make their dialogue based on his rather than make interpretations with what I think he needs. Yeah. I, I follow the track of where they are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what you're describing feels, gives a very good sense of, um, uh, the room being a ritual space. Exactly. And, uh, and that's something that is 
very much about a deep reality taking place, but not an everyday reality. Exactly. I call that Kairos time. K-A-I-R-O-S in in contrast to Kronos time, which is everyday reality, which has no depth. But in the Kairos time, real things are happening that make a difference. And that's still part of the ritual thing. And when sometimes some people just do a whole as if thing. And I, 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 I find there are different ways to deal with that. And I look to see if they're in Kairos time, which also could be called structure time. The work yeah. is called a structure. Are they really in it or are they just kind of like having a dialogue with the therapist and not really in relationship with the ideal figures? And so, uh, you know, through experience, intuition, observation, uh, you have developed a sense of being able to tell when a person is in Kairos time versus in Kronos time. Exactly. So, do you say a little bit more about that, about what happens, either, uh, you know, signs you pick up, effect it has on you, intuition, what is it that, you know, in a way allows you to monitor the, well, the nature of the, the time. I'll, I'll do it this way. Uh, when people are supervised in this work, they're supervised via videotape. They bring in a video. And then I'll see a, uh, if it's in a group the way we used to do it, uh, there would be the client. And around the client is ideal mother and father. And somewhere in the room is the real mother and father. Somewhere in the room is brother and sister. Somewhere in the room is maybe the boss. Or object, and they paying absolutely no attention to the figures. They're just talking endlessly with the therapist, mm. and then I, that's that's telling me. So I'm, if I'm leading, I'm saying, are they only attending to me, or are they really in that situation and in that age and relating to those figures? And I think that that's the dancer. The dramatist in me that's looking, are they in the play or are they just talking about it? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I tend to that. And I couldn't tell you specifically what I do because I would do different things at different moments. Yes, but what I'm hearing is there is a quality of, um, sensing that the person is involved with exactly. the figures of their past in that's such right. a way that they become very real for them at the moment. Absolutely. Even when they're looking at the placeholders, even here we're doing a movie and you have one shell being the mother as a young woman, another shell as the mother's ideal husband, not a second husband, ideal first husband. And then I'll do a little pantomime. I'll pick up the one of the husband and I'll move him like he's talking. He says, if I had been your right, I would love you. Now they're looking at these shells rattling at each other. They don't see shells anymore. Mm-hmm. They're seeing their mother with an ideal husband. So so with, when you use the words and you use the pantomime, they are seeing very powerful images. And I'm tracking what I think is going on in their brain while they are gazing. I think I've gotten some awareness of that. Uh, I don't know. So I'm tracking their interior, not just the exterior. I'm tracking what I think is going on in their brain, whether they are in that state when they're seeing vivid things and not just simply looking at these little objects in the room. 
Yeah, but so uh, very much in a way that's what's happening is that uh, uh, the correlation to the experience you're describing is a mind state where there's a certain level of waves of things that we may or may not at this point be able to measure, you know, uh, with instruments, but that corresponds to a certain functioning of the brain where it is in a receptive mode for resetting. Perfectly said. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I can look at that kind of condition and see it from their face and their expression and make that assumption that they're in that stage. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so, uh, in a way, what we're talking about is that, um, you know, you're not going to be able to make people, to help people change something that's been a profound experience unless they're brought in a place where the functioning of the brain is in that more malleable state or that more magma, you know, uh, volcanic state where there is a possibility of reshaping. I wish to God I knew how to teach people to note that because some people don't see that at all and they do this. Let me give you a little example. It's a funny example. Uh, you know, we used to have a very big estate up in New Hampshire with a lake. It was Baba Ramdas's father's estate, and he had his ashram there. Anyway, but we had a lake, and I, I never learned how to swim. And I had uh, someone from Holland who brought their two children there, and they were swimming like crazy. And the mother was trying to teach me how to swim. And the kids would watch and I would do it, do it, do it. And then they came up to the mother and they say, he does all the right moves, but he doesn't swim. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've learned to see some people do all the right moves, but there's no swimming going on. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow I've got the flavor. I, I look for that. And it, for some people, they don't get the sense of drama or whatever it is or that other state. And they do externals. They know all the steps. And how to get, I mean, the ones who really do this stuff, they tune right into that. It makes a world of difference. And that's one of those unteachable things, you know. Right. So, so that's the, the ability of the person to go themselves into Kairos time. Yeah. So they're going to be, you know, in a way in that mode that, that, that is going to enable the perception of, of yeah. that state. And the, the therapist has got to be aware of that and join them in that ritual fashion. Uh, yeah, so the therapist is a teacher, is a, uh, I don't know, maybe it has to be a little bit of a, uh, a, a priest in a way, too, and uh, as well. So many things, so many different roles are going on simultaneously in the therapist, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, so when, you know, the part of priest, this might be that sense of, uh, you know, that deep knowledge of what yeah. that Kairos time is. Yes. Um, you know, that you know it enough that you're able to, um, uh, to, 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 uh, draw people into it. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, that's something that uh, is, is in some people automatically. Some people slowly develop it. But that's essential in the training of this work. So yeah. for you, you know, if you think back about your process over the years, um, you know, do you see stages in which that own part of you 
has developed? I mean, is it a part that you've always been aware of and existed? Is there a part where you've become more and more conscious of it? How can you trace your own um, history with it? I think, to some small degree, I always had it, I think. Um, Well, here's what comes to my mind. I go to the synagogue every Friday and every Saturday with my father. And uh, as one of the, uh, I don't know what the word is, things that you do, you make choices to be part of the ceremony with the Torahs. To, uh, in the synagogue and uh, you select to do that honor and he very often would have me be have the honor of holding the little baby Torah they big out the big ones and little bit and then we had this ceremony walking around the synagogue and people would reach out with their uh, the talus, the scarves at the edge, and they touch the Torah and kiss it so I was part of that ritual of sanctity uh, and I think I, I got that quality there at that time. Uh, and I think I got it also with Martha Graham. When she was like, I moved from Judaism to Martha Grahamism, I think. Uh, and, and that thing of, of a ritual where you're touching the deep, she would do the Greek tragedies and things like that. And the, uh, uh, the uh, errand into the maze and uh, some of the other where she was right in there and I, and she did it in the dance classes. You could capture it. And little by little, I think I learned to do it on the stage and little by little, I learned how to do it with the uh, work. And it got, when I first started doing the work, I think I was in an altered state and I, I, I felt like it wasn't me doing it. I'd get out of it and I'd just be my ordinary self. But I think during it, I was in an altered state. Now I, I know I'm doing it. In another way, I, I can do that, but I'm in a much more relaxed state, and I'm feeling like I'm having an exquisite sport or game or art that that is just appealing and relaxing. So I don't, I'm not drained from it. And everybody who's trained in this work talks about feeling more relaxed. It's almost like play. Mm-hmm, except mm-hmm. you're not laughing and you're not making it, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, meaningless. So it's a, it's an odd thing. It, it, so I think I've had that kind of transition to first knowing sacred things where people are really believing they're in touch with the spiritual and uh, the, the quality that that gives. And then I found that in theater, I found that in dance, and I find that with artists. And I, I guess I automatically bring that to the work. And the people, very often it's people who are artists or who are psychiatrists who really play an instrument. One of my top people plays a violin, Dr. Lois Perquin. He's a top psychiatrist in Holland. And it's his musicality, and his father was a director of theater. So I think mm. some some people bring bring that, but other people don't. But they cultivate it. I find out where their heart is, and I help them to awaken the metaphors about where they're really touched, and somehow bring that to bear. Mm-hmm. You have to, so the therapist's heart has got to be there, but not in the possibility sphere as a, as the player, but as a supporter of that state. 
Uh, and and to make sure there's no breakage of it and not to be the supplier of healing but the supporter of the healing process with the role players who are doing it yeah the supporter of the healing process the uh, person who leads into the space who supports the space so that feels like a, a you know a very moving sense of what the the experience, the role of the therapist and the experience of the therapist. Yeah, absolutely. And people who have been uh, leading traditional groups, they get exhausted, they tell me. And then when they learn to do this, they say, what a relief it is to do this, that they are now outside. Someone else is doing the healing, and they say, I go home relaxed. Mm-hmm. So I'm finding that people who learn how to lead, and there are many hundreds now who do this, or maybe thousands, and I hear that report over and over and over again, that it, it doesn't exhaust them because they're not in a transferential state where they have to be the one that is holding the person together, but the ideal figures are doing that. Right, right. So you're holding the space. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I'm using, I have to say another thing, when when I'm working, of course I've had 50 years of experience and I can trust my intuition, but I call it the boys and girls in the back room, that while I'm working, I'm open to all my own associations and suddenly the most ridiculous possibilities come to my mind. And, and I kind of filter them through some part and I might use what comes up. And I think every human being has incredible creativity back there that they have to learn how to be in touch with because that part of the brain is working all the time, day and night, without strain and organizing things that we have learned. And to learn to be in touch with that, I think, is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So that is describing what happens in a group. So now what happens when you don't have people in the group physically uh, taking on these roles? Okay. What's the work like? Uh, it, it's surprisingly effective. And let me tell you, I also do this over the telephone where I don't even see the people. So I'm tuned in to their vocalizations as they speak. And they'll say, oh, and my mother did this. Or my, I say, well, pick an object to be your... A placeholder for your mother. I say, what did you pick? Where did you put it? So I tried to see. And then I'll say, let's make what we call a bookmark. And imagine right over your right shoulder is an ideal mother who would have bup, 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 bup. And then they'll get that feeling. And they say, oh, that makes me lean back in the chair. And I say, well, why don't we use a part of the chair to role play ideal mother? So I'll try to, sometimes I'll use objects. Or they'll say, I really need to be held. And so get a shawl, put it around your shoulder, wrap it in front of you, and we'll have that enroll as your ideal mother and her arms around you. So I try to be creative, uh, depending on what would be believable, what's at hand uh, with them. And and I, I do pretty much the same kind of thing. And I'll witness based on their tonality. So I've learned very much how to witness on the very, very minute shifts in the expression 
but I've learned, I suppose, without trying, how to hear the tone in the in the uh, volume of the voice and the tonality, because emotions come through the right hemisphere and affect the tonality. It's part of speech. There's speech that is purely cognitive. It's the left hemisphere, but then there's the right hemisphere. And animals have that. And I've learned how to hear in the tonality the emotional qualities that might be there, and I'll name that mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so definitely that uh, um, what's happening is the emotional qualities are very present. But yeah. what I'm hearing, in addition, is a sense of even in the work when the person is, when it's one-on-one, and even when it's on the phone, a sense of using placeholders and yep. of take this little thing and this, or take, you know, the armchair or part of the right. chair. Something. Exactly. So there is, so what, what's it like? What, what is that, what's that experience of actually naming something to be a placeholder? Yeah. What, what's, what happens with that? Well, first of all, the placeholders are chosen for the real figures. And then the ideal figures, I don't call placeholders. I would call it a, a bookmark. It's in the, bookmark means it's in the air okay. for the ideal other. And then the chair wouldn't be a placeholder. The chair will be role playing the, the ideal mother. Okay. Okay. So then, then they'll tell me this sensory thing as they lean back or what happens. And um, so then it, it gives you an experience of interacting. Absolutely. And so I work- it's not something in a way you move it from the as if quality, but by giving it a physicality of saying yep. it's there, then you oh. have to face it and relate to it. Exactly. But let me tell you something that is an absolute contradiction of that that happens a very small percentage of time. I'm remembering a group I led in London recently with therapists, and it was a large group, and we had all people play it. And most of the time, there was nobody there, just objects. And she had really, really was moved with the ideal mother. She felt her in the air around her. And she, she, dev- she had enough of a sensory motor memory to feel a sensory reaction to just her thoughts and the words. Mm-hmm. And then I said, just to enhance it, I said, would you like to have an eye or an actual person? They said, no, I'd rather not. Yeah. Yeah. So no. for, for that particular person, they want, they felt it strongly enough. And if they, we had a person there, some part of her, she said, would no longer believe it, which is maybe she needs some more work to believe in real people and all that. <laughs> But, but but what I'm hearing there is really that uh, very accentuating that sense of what this process is about is giving an opportunity for people to feel more intensely the presence yeah. of, um, you know, these people, actual people or missing people. Well, the, re- the reason they could have that and believe it is because our genes are anticipating. So remember we talked yes. about shape. Our genes are anticipating just that. And you give it the right vocal, verbal message, which translates into a motor message. The genes say yes. They, they, they can imagine leaning back. They can imagine snuggling in the neck of. And so we're not just making fantasy. We're making genetic expectation explicit.
and that that's what makes the uh, there's something else that was coming in that what was I thinking no I can't get it at this moment but there's an internal receptivity and anticipation of all these things and I I found ways to awaken that right right oh I know I know what I was talking about I know okay sometimes they say I say well you know, you don't believe it, you know, the ideal parents. And they said, well, if it was a dog, my dog, I would believe it. So I put a placeholder for the dog, and I put the principle of ideal mother on the dog. And the ideal mother says, if I was your ideal mother, I would be as faithful and caring of you as the dog is. Mm. So we, we begin to link it up sort of that way. And sometimes it's a tree. Sometimes it's a mountain. Because I look at what they already are ready to believe in in a transferential way, but not in a human interaction way, uh, where the answers would be. And very often people have spiritual answers. We'll have an image of God in the air. And uh, they say, God hears me, God attends to me. Because when we don't have people as an answer, we get a spiritual answer. But I'm, I'm saying that our basic human needs have to be with a human interaction. So I then make the principle of the ideal parent is in God, and somehow we can move those around. Uh, anyway, th- these are some of the complex steps. That yes, but, but uh, these are complex steps, but also what I'm hearing is while they're complex, uh, they're also very grounded because you made yeah. the point this is not fantasy. Um, exactly. This is not somebody else's vision of reality. That's this right. This is about helping somebody, you know, we all have some things that are very powerfully stored inside, yep. and you're giving an opportunity for these things to be present in the room. Exactly, exactly. And then we work with it and move it finally, hopefully, to human interaction, which is what our genes are anticipating. And when they don't get it, people start putting, they store that wonder in different banks that have not collapsed like their real mother or their real father. Those banks have gone bankrupt. So they put it where it's safe. Some people put it in horses. Some people put it in God. Some people put it in the atmosphere. So I have to look at what they really believe in mm-hmm. and what they really trust. And then I try to imagine with them what the essences of that are. You know. Yeah. It, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So again, you know, I'm struck as you're describing this of um, um, what people believe in, what they trust, you know, and uh, what happens in your own lifetime, but also in terms of parents and, uh, you know, the presence of the ancestors, the beliefs. So again, that how um, uh, consistent it is with thinking of it as a ritual and yeah. as something that puts you in touch with these things that are larger uh, yeah. than the everyday perception of things. You, you're hitting that point over and over and very, very importantly so, because I'm not sure how many therapists are working on a ritual base. They're working on a here and now base and let me ha- and say, I'm going to help you. And it's not a ritual anymore. It's happening in the here and now. Yeah. And I, and, I think and, that. And, and what strikes me again is to make the point what, you know, as you're talking that it's a ritual space, but it's not uh, ritual as a way of saying bypassing reality or bypassing, yeah. you know, very, uh, you know, presence. Bypass, you know, it's 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 deeply anchored in reality. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And the fact of it being a ritual means we can condense and collapse time and put that event that's happening now in the past and put it where it had been anticipated. Without that ritual setting, I'm not so sure it goes back there. It becomes a healing in the present, and they learn how to overcome something in the past by getting strong in the present, which is good. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the best. How, and that's a coping coping system. So I'm not teaching them so much to cope, but to change history so that they have the energy to deal with the all the imperfections of reality. Yeah, yeah. So it brings to mind what you said before at some point in the conversation about having that quality without having the dogma. So yeah. um, it's kind of finding uh, the strength of transformative healing that old ancient tradition have. Yeah, you put it you're putting that yeah you put i just got to tell you you're putting that so beautifully i just have to tell you okay go on again but you know really that sense very that strong sense of connecting with that deep need that we've had that you know that uh, from way way back when probably in the caves you know that uh, of um, finding that ability to go at a level uh, of the the human experience that is healing in a transformative way Uh, but you know anchoring it in an observation, uh, paying attention to what happens uh, in a worldview that is not yep. limited by dogma and fear. That's true. And right in the midst of all that is touching the element that is so profound in people, the longing for meaning. And we then stay that this is a meaningful universe where everything counts. Because when people are living a life of disaster, they say, God has abandoned me, there's no meaning on earth. And you you get that whole other way of looking at the world. And we reconnect. I think the longing for meaning is genetic and innate. And uh, I, I try to tap in on that and the different ways that people find ultimate meaning. So, in a way, it brings me to the question we had alluded to before, you know, in a pre-conversation, is a sense of what's it like for the therapist to do this kind of work. And uh, as I'm hearing you, uh, I have a sense of, in a way, the therapist as a, a person who is affirming the possibility of meaning. Yes, yes, for sure. And it, it enriches in myself and in the therapist. But the, the other thing is, it, it's peace-giving inside. It reaffirms. People say over and over again, I'm so glad I learned this training because I can do this work without being exhausted. That I have to say that over and over again because I'm told that over and over. And that says, that's some, some important shift between the way they learn to do therapy and where they're learning to do this particular form of therapy. It, it feels more like play and some of them say they have more energy at the end than they had at the beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So I, I don't know how to describe that in any other way. Yeah. yeah so maybe it's, that part of, um, in a way, having the experience of being in that space yeah. is a space where you can feel flow and a nourishment instead flow, of striving yeah. and fighting. 
Yeah, flow. Exactly. Flow is exactly it. And then uh, struggling comes when when you got resistance going on and you got that negative transference. And now I know how better to work with that. I say, who did you take care of it? Because as soon as there's resistance, I know there has to be holes and rolls topic. So I sidestep all the uh, the attacks and stuff like that. I remember telling one person, he says, oh, you know, he was so vicious and nasty at me. And he says, can you handle that? I said, sure. I've, I've met your relatives all over the world, you know, <laughs> because they think they're the only angry person. You know, that's part of the Messiah complex. Because when you fill holes and rows, you're the only, and then you think you're Satan. You're the only killer on the universe. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of a come down sometimes for them to feel, oh, there are other killers out there. Right. You know, <laughs> that's, that's just a bit of humor. But I've learned how not to take it so personally. Personally, when all the stuff is shooting at me, when that when that does happen, uh, when they tell you, "What are you trying to do? This fairy tale fantasy stuff, you know, and all that," and then I just go for the holes and rolls part. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess what I'm saying here, some of it has a play element. I feel like somewhere I'm playing. I don't know how to put that any other yeah. way. Yeah. Sep- yeah. Separate from the sacred, there's there's something about play in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe it's not so separate because in a way it's not a place where you're holding the world on your shoulders. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, the playing yeah. is possible. Yes, exactly. You don't exactly. have to, to do that. Ca- carry, you don't have to be Atlas carrying the yeah. universe. Right, right, right. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.